Welcome to the first ever Educationalist podcast. For this very special occasion, I have an equally special guest, Jasmine Neuhaus. Jasmine is a professor of US history and popular culture at SUNY Plattsburgh and the 2020-2021 interim director of Plattsburgh Center for Teaching Excellence. She's the recipient of the SUNY Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Teaching and author of Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers. In addition to two historical monographs, Jessamine has published pedagogical, historical, and cultural studies research in numerous anthologies and journals, and regularly gives public presentations and workshops on teaching. An advocate for introverts in the college classroom and for scholarship of teaching and learning that celebrates infinite diversity in infinite combinations, Jessamine's mission as an educational developer is to help faculty nerd out about teaching and to use their big smart brains for increasing pedagogical self-efficacy. Visit her website, geekypedagogy.com, and find her on Twitter at geekypedagogy. To begin with, I asked Jessamine to tell us a little bit about herself and her story. Sure, and it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I'd say that my story in educational development and faculty development begins with my book. It was published in 2019 in the West Virginia University Press series on teaching and learning in higher education. And the seed for that book was really planted when my son, I have one child, my son began school. He's 20 years old now. And he is an off the charts extrovert and a pretty indifferent student. He, academics are not his jam. Uh, recess was his favorite, then gym class. And his experience of school was so different from mine. As an introvert, as an egghead, as a bookworm, how I thrived in school was so different from his experiences. And that really crystallized for me how different many of my own students as a college instructor how differently my own students were experiencing academics than from myself when I began thinking about it and looking around I saw a lot of people like me teaching college nerdy geeky highly intellectual scholars and thinking about how that might have impacted my teaching. It took me a very, very long time to learn how to teach effectively. I had zero training in graduate school. So those, all those uh, ideas went into the creation of Geeky Pedagogy, the book. I was super, super fortunate to have the manuscript accepted by West Virginia University Press and Part of being in that series uh, to, pu to publicize the book, I got on social media for the very, very first time on Twitter. I was very nervous about it, not only because just as an introvert, I have a tough time peopling and I thought, oh no, more people. <laughs> but also I'm a pretty late adopter of technology and hadn't been engaged in social media. Well, to my utter astonishment, I found on Twitter, not just kind of shout outs to my book, but really a whole pedagogical community of practice. I'm at SUNY Plattsburgh, which is a, a small university. 
I have some great colleagues, but we're, we're very small. We're in a very uh, uh, geographically isolated region. Um, I'm currently the interim director for a part-time interim director or full-time professor for a, t a teaching center of one. So Twitter is really my big pedagogical community of practice and meeting people like yourself and a, a lot of other p uh, faculty, people in higher, head, uh, higher ed passionate about teaching and learning and faculty development has really changed the, just my own teaching practices for the better and also my connection with other faculty developers and my work with the Teaching Senate. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> your your um, uh, comment about uh, having a teaching and learning center of one reminded me very much of my own experience. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, yes, I completely understand that. <laughs> and I see the, the value of social media in this context. I, mm -hmm. I completely am on the same page with you there. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your approach to, to educational development in your position and also, yeah, how, how are sure. you working together with faculty? Sure. Well, as an individual, and like it says on my website, my basic approach is empowering people to use their big fat brains for effective teaching. And I do use that term very, very deliberately effective teaching. I use it in the book as well. I think terms, I, I understand why people say good teaching, excellent teaching, outstanding teaching, but there's so many stereotypes around what good teaching, good college teaching looks like and who a college professor is supposed to quote unquote look like. And as a Star Trek fan and faculty developer, I I'm a staunch advocate of infinite diversity and infinite combinations that, that extends to faculty development as well. In teaching, there are so, so many different ways that we can help students learn that I want people who are not natural performers, people, introverts and ambiverts, um, people who maybe are really passionate about their subject, but kind of came to teaching without much training or background or thought about what that might entail. Empowering those people, you know, my tribe of eggheads and bookworms to use their brains to help students learn how to do things. Currently, I'm the interim director at a, a very small teaching center. It's a center of one currently with, um, very part-time, some administrative support. I'm on a state university campus, which means uh, in New York State, which means finances are tight. We've had some real budget crunches over the past few years. And of course, the pandemic has only increased that. So I'm not working with a lot of resources. However, my mission that I can achieve in this role at, on on a campus with a, with a lot of silos without a strong culture of faculty development without a lot of resources my mission is to be a curator of resources so providing faculty with lots of online links um, free trainings 
things like that. So not necessarily creating those resources, but curating them. I can be a campus connector, helping break down some of those silos, and I can be a community builder. So Twitter is my main pedagogical community of practice right now, but I'm, I'm really hopeful and I'm starting to make some inroads into helping cultivate and sustain a Plattsburgh community, pedagogical community of practice um, here at, the, at SUNY Plattsburgh. Thank you. This sounds ex excellent, actually. Curator, <laughs> connector, and community builder. This is yeah, I, think I, I have a big weakness for alliteration, too. So <laughs> <laughs> This is really important, actually. All those aspects are really important, uh, especially when the resources are scarce. And yes. uh, I think in, a lot of people can identify with you, in fact. Um, it is really big universities that have quite a lot of resources uh, on that, but I think majority, in majority of the places, the resources are scarce, and I think it's important yes. to try to use them the best we can, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and in a way that makes sense for the majority of faculty, yes. and I mm -hmm. think this is the other in interesting point I, 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 I thought you mentioned, that uh, the fact that you are trying to um, address a diversity of, mm -hmm. of, of educators mm -hmm. uh, and acknowledging the fact that not everyone is the same not everyone yes. has uh, uh, the same background but also the same uh, philosophy about teaching yes. and learning yep. uh, and we all come from different places we are we all mm -hmm. are at different points I, I, I find I, I really identify with that I think this mm -hmm. is something I learned a lot in my work as well and it's something to respect and to work with it, it's mm -hmm. a really good material to work with actually mm -hmm. I find mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that was my, that was my approach to the scholarship of teaching and learning as well when I was writing the book and it's carried over into faculty development. I think we in this field haven't done a, a, as good a job as we, as we can in the future in acknowledging the way that embodied identity shapes and impacts student, uh, teaching and learning because we're all human beings and surprise embodied identity shapes human interactions so when we talk about something like that term that gets thrown around teaching best practices yes there's some evidence-based strategies and practices that seem to be very effective in the classroom but we when we are recommending those when we're sharing those with faculty we also have to take into account the ways that um student biases might be impacting their reception to certain kinds of strategies. We have to take into account what sociologist Roxanne Harlow called disparate teaching realities. You know, what I have to do as an older white lady to it's it's shaped and influenced what I've been doing. Um, I started this role in an interim position in the spring of 2020. I had done some work with the teaching center previously working with the there we had had a previous um, full-time director Becky Dr. Becky Casper a really good friend of mine fantastic teacher who died very suddenly the year previously and we the teaching center was kind of at loose ends and we pulled together this, this really part-time, I would have one course release, 
and do a little bit of work with the teaching center in the spring of 2020. Well, yeah, that plan, like all our plans, changed <laughs> really quickly that spring um, during the emergency pivot. And just my, my own personal experience, I did not have any experience teaching online. I used our learning management system, but not extensively, not for actual like content delivery kind of things. So I was thrown into that position that so many faculty and instructors were. I became a novice learner. You know, I was doing something for the very, very, very first time. It was hard. You know, one of the things I, I mention in my book as a reality that we always have to be aware of teaching is that learning is hard. There's so much great science of learning and cognition out now, a lot of um, detailed information about how our brains work, how learning works, but it can be boiled down to learning's really freaking hard. <laughs> learning how to do anything is hard. It takes practice, it takes failure, it takes persistence, it takes feedback, and it's hard. So trying to do that just as a teacher on top of my new role in the teaching center was difficult. The joy of it, the advantage of it, was the way that at that moment there was an openness and, and receptivity to faculty development that was unexpected. You know, being thrown into that, that condition of use these things you've never used before and try to finish the semester made many, many faculty who'd never darkened the doors of the teaching center willing to zoom in and ask and to say out loud, I'm, I'm not sure how to finish teaching this class. I mean, that, that's, that's so gigantic for, for know-it-all academics to admit in, a, in our closed-door, solitary teaching profession to admit I, I could use some assistance with this. So that was the, the most rewarding part um, that, that, that maybe counterbalanced a little bit some of the challenges. I, I would never, ever, ever, ever say there was like quote unquote silver lining or that I'm grateful in any way for, the, for a devastating global pandemic. But both these things can be true. Like I say to faculty, you're, you're really smart and you can hold these two ideas, these two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. The pandemic era of teaching just straight up sucked. I mean, there's, there's so many bad things about it. And, and in addition to that truth, and we are learning some really important things about teaching as individuals and as institutions. We're learning important things about students that we can apply post pandemic. Both those things are true. Yeah, I'm really happy that you actually mentioned both <laughs> this ambivalence. It's actually quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I do, I admit, I do sometimes mention the silver lining, but only in the sense that you have mentioned it. It's, it's just the fact that, of course, 
it, there can be a silver lining to such a disastrous situation overall. <laughs> but I think the, the fact that exactly what you mentioned, the, the growing receptivity for faculty development mm -hmm. among mm -hmm. professors, I think that was just amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And I noticed it everywhere, in fact. Uh, and having known a little bit more about uh, their attitudes before the pandemic, yes. um, I have to say this, is, this has been really the biggest... Um, the, 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 the most positive aspect for me, at yes. least, the fact that they decided that, that they started to try new things, to talk yes. more about teaching, yeah. um, and uh, yeah. also to yeah to to just just be a little bit more more um, open mm -hmm. to new ideas, mm -hmm. and also to be more open to admit that they don't know something. Just what right. you said. I think that was, <laughs> that is really something rare, and that's that's something that's been happening for the past past yes. months, and that's really good. And yeah. about being a learner, I think this is exactly this is something that we all should do more often. Again, mm -hmm. not, I'm not <laughs> thanking the pandemic, but I think right. for me, even though I've been doing online learning for about 12 years now, uh -huh. or more even, uh, I think it's still, uh, I learned quite a lot in the past year uh, because yes. of the new context, because I was not doing e-learning in the context of a pandemic mm. before. Mm -hmm. I was not doing e-learning where everyone was remotely before. Right. Um, so, uh, and I was also not working with, with so different educators from so different mm -hmm. backgrounds. So I think there is always a learning aspect and I, I actually really cherish that one uh, as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, yeah, what makes me happiest is this, this change towards um, being more, more willing to, to, to put effort into teaching. To, yeah. to intentionally yeah. put effort into teaching. And I really hope that sticks, let's see, <laughs> really hope Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, my sense is that that as we're coming on the end of the third semester, burnout is starting to loom large, like serious burnout, not just a little, oh, I'm a little tired, but a lot of people who really care about student learning and have been trying really, really hard to implement some of these new things are starting to feel pretty discouraged. Uh, it, you know, it's a, such a tough time for everyone in higher education, students, administrators, faculty, staff. And I think my, what I'm observing is that in non-crisis situations, when faculty engaged in educational development, took a workshop, learned some new strategies, there's always a startup cost. That's what my colleague at SUNY Oswego, Rebecca Mushter, calls it. There's a startup cost, just like you start a new business. There's a startup cost for trying something new as an educator, for putting a new strategy in place, for trying a new assignment. And in non-pandemic times, you see a payoff. So you put in the, the startup cost, but you get a payoff in increase student learning or you're energized to by by trying something new and and you have fun assessing it those payoffs are getting lower and lower and lower right now just because of how draining this is uh, because of the the context of being in a in a global financial health uh, political crisis it's kind of like everybody who cares so cares so much about student learning and has been trying really hard has been withdrawing from their teaching energy 
account and withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing with very little being paid back in. And that's nobody's fault at all. I'm not saying that, but just because of how miserable many aspects of life are or how stressful many aspects of life are. I mean, we're, we are still in working and living in a crisis. So I guess my, my concern is that unless we as faculty developers and our institutions pay a lot of attention right now to giving faculty some support and encouragement to rest and to try to recharge their batteries. I mean, ironically, I think one of the very best things I could do as an educational developer in the month of June and July is tell faculty don't take any workshops, don't read any books, don't even look at articles unless they make you happy, unless they give you energy, unless they make you excited to start teaching again and try to try to recuperate. It, it's funny that, but it's totally true that people who teach really, really effectively also need to take breaks from teaching, need to power down their teaching persona even just for a month if possible and either do other kinds of research or do nothing but i think we we, we really need to rest I, we've been pivoting quote unquote for a year over a year um most people i know worked really hard over the summer to try to get ready for fall 2020 and I know it's a luxury in this world to say, you know, take a, take a break. But if that's at all possible, I, I hope people who are teaching in the fall will be able to do that. Yes, very good points, actually. <laughs> I, and it's, it's really thanks for mentioning that because we cannot go on forever at the same time. Right. We've been going on in the past year. In the end, that will result to in, in really suboptimal, uh, you know, yes. teaching and learning and, and experience yeah. for everyone. Yeah. And, and at, at its worst, at you know, really loss of, of well-being, uh, yes. which we've been experiencing yeah. anyway. So yeah. it's very, very important to, to, to think about that aspect as well. Yeah. Well, we um, know as, as educators, we wouldn't ask our students. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't schedule a class for non-stop reading and testing every single week for a year, right? That would be dumb. Like we know the students wouldn't make it. That's too much. So we should be helping ourselves because we're also all learning brand new things because this has never happened before. I, I don't think enough people are saying that this isn't online teaching like we did in the before times. This, for the very first time in all of human history, a bunch of people in higher education are using teleconferencing to teach. What? That's never happened before. I'm sorry, it's unprecedented. I know everybody hates that word, but it's unprecedented. So we're out here doing something no set of educators and no set of students has ever tried to do before. There's no scholarship of teaching and learning to draw on. There's no wisdom of practice. It's brand new. And when you learn something brand new, 
your brain needs to rest. You need to learn, 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 rest. Learn, 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 rest. I'm ready to rest. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of us are ready to rest. I really, really love this message. This is really, really important. Um, so yeah, let's get a little bit more practical. And I was okay. wondering whether you have, or the, that was very practical already. <laughs> <laughs> take that, that piece of practical advice. But I was wondering whether you can, um, you can give us one example or, or several examples uh, of, of initiatives or, or small projects. Or you, you did mention a few of your yes, tools for I faculty development. But yeah. if you have a few, I don't know, ins inspiring ideas yeah. that well, colleagues I, could use. Yeah, I have two. One that I think is maybe not as applicable other places and one that I think anybody could use. The one that was sort of, I think, a little bit unique to my campus was before I assumed the role of the interim director of the teaching center, there, there were two, the, there's two very, very completely um, systemically separated units and centers, the Center for Teaching and Learning and the um, Technology Enhanced Learning Unit. And for reasons that I'm not privy to, I don't know what all happened, uh, po campus politics or, or just um, resources or something, but they were really, really separate and they never, never worked together. So as soon as I assumed the role and then definitely like when the pandemic hit, John Locke, who's my, uh, my colleague, he is the coordinator for the Technology Enhanced Learning Unit, and he also teaches here. John Locke and I started calling each other, and we're like, you know what? Why are we working separately when at this moment in time, more than maybe, no, for sure, more than any other moment in the past, people who know really well how to learn the how to use the learning management system on our campus and people who know a lot about pedagogical approaches need to work together because faculty need both so the two of us together very very publicly and prominently as campus leaders worked together that semester and have continued to work together and that means both like organized programs like we do workshops together we also did um, a faculty kind of happy hour back when that was an innovative thing in Zoom. <laughs> um, and more than just those, uh, those formal events and formal programming, we provided in the, our leadership capacity, we kind of modeled, look, silos are nonsense. There's just no reason why we shouldn't all be talking to each other about how to navigate this crazy situation and how to help our students keep learning. We, we need lots and lots of voices and we can work together to do that. So that's a sort of um, maybe unique to my situation, but I think a, a lot of places modeling and implementing programs that encourage that campus community can be very, very beneficial for teaching. And so the second thing I would recommend more specific that anybody could do, but that also helps achieve those goals is I organized a series, and I'm still doing it now, a series of 
faculty discussion roundtables with different facilitators from all over campus. And I just, I called up um, the basketball coach. I called up the diversity, equity, and inclusion vice president. I called up uh, the coordinator of the campus food shelf. I said, come facilitate a roundtable. Talk about how, how your uh, how your role on campus, what what wisdom do you have to share with people who are teaching? And those have been very, very, very successful in creating some really great conversations around teaching and building that sense of community. Like we're, we, we're, we're all on the same page. We want students to succeed. We want students to do well. So that, that would be a specific and easy except for making all the calls, which I hate being on the phone. <laughs> but that's the most important part of my job. It's super ironic that I am um, such a big introvert and that actually the most important part of my job is probably peopling and talking to other people and connecting people with other people and inviting people to share their expertise. Um, and a round table is a really simple, it's a high impact with low uh, kind of input of energy and time. It's, I'm not creating new content, but I'm building community and drawing on the expertise that's already here on campus and breaking down those god-awful silos. This sounds great. I've heard it in, in several uh, in several uh, uh, contexts, and I think it, it does work. And of course, you have to feel a little bit what is your own context and who yes. you can rely on. And I yes. was wondering, uh, how do you... Are people willing to come and share their experiences? I, I've never got turned down. Everybody has always said yes. People, and I, but to be clear, I didn't put out a general, uh, just a general announcement. Oh, if you have something to share, come to the CTE. That doesn't work. You seek out the experts on campus and you ask them if they'd be willing to give up some time and energy, you know, acknowledge that everybody's really busy, but explain why you're asking this person in with for their insights. And you know, people, I I found in my in my experience, people were very very willing to contribute in that way. They, I mean, I I I know. You want to be cautious. You don't want to ask people to do a bunch of unpaid labor for you. Um, that's why I'm not, I, I don't ask for like a formal presentation or do a big study, but really just come and talk about what you do and what you know from your role on campus. Um, so yeah, no, I haven't had that, that issue at all. Uh, people have been very, very willing um, Maybe especially because you know we're all feeling the pinch of the pandemic, and we we want to try to support each other when we can. I I, I would hope anyway. This sounds this sounds good. I think it's it's, <laughs> a, it's actually your role as a connector that you, you yes. mentioned in the beginning, and yeah. it's indeed I, I I it's good that you mentioned it uh, explicitly. But mm -hmm. I, I do believe that indeed we we need to seek out the people and not just you know. Um, 
have an open ad for, right. for everyone. That right. might work, but it, it also might really not yeah. work and, and no. there is silence. So I think it's important to really try to connect people that have something to say, to share. And I also yes. feel that people actually learn a lot from each other. Sometimes yes. I feel that they learn better from each other than from us. So actually oh, absolutely. this is yeah. more of an important job, I think, for us mm -hmm. to, to connect those people and to mm -hmm. create those communities rather than mm -hmm you know, teaching them something or training mm -hmm. them something. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, these are really, really good examples. And mm -hmm. I think, again, uh, not not that easy because you have to make a lot of phone calls or emails. Yes, or yeah, yeah. It's a lot of scheduling. Yeah, scheduling. Mm -hmm. uh, and now since everything is online, it's, it's, it's getting, you know, you, you have to try to avoid having people people's schedules completely, completely right right you know packed. right but but i yes. think uh, again there, there, I, my experience is also that people have been very positive towards it so the mm -hmm. response has been really positive mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah i was actually wondering uh, you did mention a few already but uh, you know looking back now on one year i would say <laughs> it's a good reflective moment um what are the most important lessons you know, you took from the past year and how, if at all, you want to, you know, use them in your future yeah. practice? <laughs> well, I would say there's, there's two types of lessons. And the first for me, as I mentioned, as a late adopter of technology, one important set of lessons for me has been around my increased ability to facilitate student learning using my learning management system, some very, very concrete skills, I think especially in terms of making my classes more resilient and more inclusive. Just to use a specific example that's incredibly embarrassing to admit, but I share it so uh, as to empower other late adopters of technology like myself. I had put off for years, literally years, I put off learning how to have students submit assignments electronically and to give grades and feedback electronically. I put it off even knowing that pedagogically it would make sense because when you're scaffolding things and you're trying to build a culture of feedback, you want to be able to easily look back, okay, so what did I say to that student on the last assignment and are they applying it? So electronic submissions just made sense pedagogically um, to help them learn how to use feedback and for me to see it. And it also was just more student friendly because it meant they didn't have to go to the, go find a printer, print out the paper and bring me the assignment. But I just kept putting it off because I didn't want to learn a new technology. Well, you know, March, 2020, <laughs> I didn't have any choice. So I learned how to do it and sure enough, Sure enough, I'm gonna do it forever. You know, there's no, there's no way I'm ever, ever, ever going back to having students print out their papers. So those kinds of lessons and using things like um, captioning on videos and in meetings in ways making, uh, giving students different options for how to present their knowledge. Those were all kind of concrete skills that I've personally um, increased over this past year because I had to, but I'm very happy to do it again. I can hold these two ideas. I really wish this year hadn't happened. And I am also very glad that I can do these things. You know, I'm going to take 
take the gift there, which is I have increased my ability to help students learn. So I'll take that gift. The second lesson is a little bit bigger, and I just I touched on it in your last question as well. I, and this is both for teaching and for faculty development. Peopling is more important than even I had guessed before. And which is funny, I mean, the whole premise of Geeky Pedagogy, the book, is that we introverts, socially awkward dorks who are really, really good at researching, but not so good at uh, social and human interactions, have to learn how to use our passion for our subject to help students learn and to build rapport with students and to be approachable. So I knew all that going into the pandemic. But this past year and working now for a whole year as, a, as the interim director just has really, really crystallized for me how much of what we do is about connecting with other people and helping other people feel better. <laughs> you know, feel better about their teaching or feel better about their learning. I know um, a book that was, has been very helpful for me in the same series, West Virginia series, is Sarah Rose Kavanaugh's book. Sarah Rose Kavanaugh's book. Um, oh my lord! Which I'm just break. I'm blanking on the title. What the heck is it called? Oh my god! Sorry, Sarah. I'm blanking on the title of your book. I'll have to go back and add that. I'll look it up after, after um, I get done talking about this question. Um, but her book on the the how the science of emotion is so key to learning. I just keep coming back to that and to some of her um, upcoming research, which she's been talking about on Twitter, how a big survey of students seems to suggest that the most important thing is not course design, it's not even pedagogical approach. The, the deciding factor in whether or not students learn effectively in a class is how the instructor helps them feel or, or makes them feel in their interactions, which is, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, I was joking about how I have to be on the phone, but if you had told me before I took this job, most of your job is going to be about networking in, in, the, in the most positive sense, uh, about talking to people, uh, helping people, um, feel more empowered, and a whole bunch of scheduling so you can have people talk to other people, I would have said, I'm not sure I'm your girl. I, I, I am very awkward. <laughs> I am a big introvert. But it, that the human connection and the ways that the pandemic has kind of brought to light what we're missing there has just... That's been a huge area of learning for me. I, I, I'm reading um, for my book group with SUNY As We Go and SUNY Plattsburgh this semester, we're reading James Lang's new book, Distracted, about student attention. And his basic premise is, the question isn't how do we get students to turn off the, their phones in class? The question is how do we help students cultivate active attention? How do we create the space which is rare in our world to be 
fully engaged and 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 have curious productive attention and it made me realize why i miss the classroom so so much because pre-pandemic i always thought of the classroom as i i knew i liked being there i knew i found very very meaningful and engaging work but i also was really tired you know at the end of every class there's so so many students there and they're all looking at you and you have to um, put on your professor pants and and interact instead of sitting quietly and reading books, which is uh, what I thought academia was going to be. <laughs> but there's no actual job title for sitting in an ivory tower and reading books quietly to yourself. You have to actually go out and interact with people. Well, not being able to do that in person made me realize that being in the classroom is the one and only time, it's the one and only thing I do where I'm completely and fully engaged in the moment. And it has my utter attention. I'm not thinking about what happened. As soon as I step into that classroom and I'm with students, I'm not thinking about what happened yesterday. I'm not worrying about what's gonna happen in the following class or tomorrow or next month. My, my, my brain weasels aren't uh, fighting in, in my head. It's only in the classroom. And I haven't been able to recreate that in any kind of Zoom or online. It's just too tempting. Oh, quick, check my email. Quick, put in that Amazon book order. Um, oh, look, there's my calendar sitting over there on my desk. Oh, I'm worried about that deadline. So I don't have that that incredibly rare, precious, and, and so rewarding attention space that, in, that the in-person classroom um, gives me. And that requires other people, which I just, I didn't realize that as someone who's so introverted pre-pandemic. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying, <laughs> actually. Uh, I think the connections are the things we actually realized we miss the most mm -hmm. when we actually had to, to recreate them online as much as possible. And of course, yes. then the, the impossibility of a lot of things <laughs> came about. Um, yes. I agree, it's difficult at the moment to, to really recreate fully the this, this, this feeling that you described so nicely, this idea mm -hmm. of full mindfulness, I would yes. say. And I, I do agree with you. I, I, I know, I know um, because it's not mediated by anything. Now you're always yes. mediated by screens, yes. by technology, by yeah. things that might work or might not work. Yeah. Uh, but there is just you and the students. And actually, yes. it's, it's nice when you say that you realize how important that connection actually mm -hmm. is. And indeed, I think what we realized in the pandemic, and I, I felt the same, is that good teaching is not only about good pedagogy or like yes. you know, a very, very yes. rigorous pedagogy, yeah. very well-planned lesson plans mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It is about connections. It is about yes. connections between us and the students, yeah. among the students, yes. uh, uh, between the students and the content and the course. Yeah. So it's really all about these connections and, yeah. and those things. And, and we got to this conclusion because we realized that these are the most difficult to mediate with technology, yes. actually. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. And just to, to follow up on that and to encourage anybody listening, I'm a, a very strong believer and proponent. It exactly, um, exactly 
what Alexandra just said, that it's about that connection and rapport. But that does not mean you have to be touchy-feely or warm and fuzzy. It can look very different from person to person and educator to educator. And for example, the, the way that I connect with students and how I know I, I can build rapport with them is very intellectual. I'm utterly fascinated by their ideas. I'm way more fascinated by what they think about a subject than my own beautiful smarty pants um, ideas about a subject. And that, it, that's one of my teaching superpowers. That's how I feel connected. And I, I, I know that because I'm so fascinated with their ideas and their thinking processes that I can help them connect with me and connect with each other and connect with the content through that lens of your thinking is so, so fascinating. Let's talk about those ideas more. Tell me more about what you think about that. And that helps empower them. It makes them feel like they can do it, like they can succeed. That's, that, that's the lens that works for me. And that helps me build connection. It doesn't, saying that connection, saying that that human component is the, is the foundation of effective teaching doesn't mean that you, nerdy introvert, have to transform yourself into the, uh, we all know that like that ultra performer professor or that super fatherly or motherly professor that students just feel so emotionally connected to immediately. You don't have to be that person to make those connections. It can be the lens that works for you. I, ha I have to say I'm smiling now when I, when I listen to this because uh, in the beginning, I, I, well, early, not in the beginning, but earlier on in the <laughs> pandemic, I don't remember anymore now which period. <laughs> but, it's all blurry. Uh, all is blurry. But, but I, was, I kept hearing and reading about, you know, pedagogy of care and caring and so on. Yes. And a part of me, I mean, of course, I, I yes. totally yes. Know, subscribe to that. But yes. a part of me was saying, I'm not the person to send yes. really touchy right, messages right. to students. Yes. I mean, I, I have to do it differently. I can't yes. do it like this. It has to mean something else. Yeah. So I really looked a little bit more into this, and I realized that, that establishing your presence in the course yes. is so much more than that, you know? Yeah. It's even yeah. the way you design the course, even the way you offer them different options, as you just uh, said mm -hmm. in the question before. Mm -hmm. uh, all those things show that you care. You don't have to say right. In this right, way. right. So I'm really happy you you are on the same page on that because I really yeah. felt a little bit scared in the beginning. I oh said, yeah, now yeah. With technology, we have to compensate. You have to be yeah. super motherly, and I, yes, I'm not right. going to play this role. No, no, no. That's not me. And that's it's funny you say that specifically because that 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 very specific phrasing was what first it was actually pretty key to some of what I wrote in the book. Was I started to get student evaluations that said she really cares about students. She really cares, she really cares, the, you know, saying I care. And uh, you know, the first time I read them, I'm like, I don't know, I, what do they mean exactly? I mean, it's not that, like, just like you said, it's not like I don't care, I care very much. And what I was able to, upon reflection, realize and what students were picking up on completely correctly was I care so deeply about their ideas and about learning and about their success. And it's not because of who I am. It's, it's not caring in the sense of lovey-dovey, um, warm and fuzzy, but caring in that 
I plan really carefully. I, I structure and say constantly, I want you to succeed. I want you to learn this. I'm very, very interested in your ideas. I'm very, very interested in your success. Here's all the ways I'm giving you to be successful. And, and they quite correctly, they were ahead of me on this one, they quite correctly said, she really cares. Um, but I, I just, I couldn't agree with you more. That, and anybody listening, I just want to encourage you. That care can take whatever form works for you and helps you connect with people. Yes, indeed. I think uh, yes. communicating this clearly to the students yes. already shows <laughs> that, that yeah. you're you are invested in their success. And I think yes. this is really, really important. Yeah, yeah but it's really, really great messages to end, uh, <laughs> to end with yeah. on, on, a, on, a, on an encouraging note. I mean, even though yes. we're all super tired and at yes. the end, seemingly at the end of our <laughs> energy uh, <laughs> reserves, um, I think, uh, I think uh, uh, we need to, to, uh, to focus on what's important to maybe let go yes. of some other things yeah. and, and yeah. you know, take it easy and care about ourselves as well, because if right. we don't care about ourselves, we cannot care yes, about that's students. Right. Uh, but yeah. I think these, these, these issues that we, you mentioned are very, very important. Um, yeah, I just thank you for, for everything. I just want of to course. end with a, with, a, with a question. Well, if, if uh, anyone wants to read more about you or read more oh, about sure. your work, where can they find it? I have a website. It's Geeky Pedagogy. That's all one word. Geekypedagogy.com. You can find a lot of links there. Um, the next project that I'm working on will be an anthology that I'm editing. It is going to be in the same West Virginia University Press series. And I'm really, really excited about this anthology. It's a collection of authors some new voices to the scholarship of teaching and learning and some more established voices. And it is a collection of intersectional teaching strategies for interrupting bias about faculty and increasing student learning. Thank you. That sounds really interesting. It's actually. going to be great. Looking forward, looking yes. forward to reading that. Uh, thanks a lot, Esme, for, for your uh, Thanks for inviting uh, me. Kind of, I had a great time for accepting my invitation and, and for all your uh, your thoughts and ideas. I think it's really enriching for everyone listening uh, and looking forward to maybe collaborating at some point. Yeah, so fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Around the World series on faculty development. You can find more stories on educationalist.eu. Watch this space in the coming months for more inspiration on professional development approaches in higher education from around the globe.